Matthew chapter 8 and starting at verse 5 says, Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, as you, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that uh, you would speak through me with your speak through me to uh, to enlighten us this morning with your word that uh, that we would see you more clearly as uh, as the God of this world who wields absolute authority, who has control over all things down to the minutest details and cares for all types of people. Lord, that, uh, that you care for the child servant of a Roman soldier versus the people called out of Egypt, out of slavery. Lord, it's not just one special people that you care for, but the entire world. And Lord, we're thankful to be included in those Gentiles that uh, you have chosen to, to save by your mighty hand. Lord, I ask you to forgive my sins. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to remind you, before getting started on the text, of the theme of our spring Bible conference in order to get the context of this passage. If you recall, we heard messages preached from Matthew chapters 5 through 7, commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' counter-cultural message that righteousness must go beyond tradition and law-keeping in order to be members of the kingdom of heaven. We must have righteousness, which he says exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. During our conference, uh, Brother Lewis, Lewis Kiger preached a message called Jesus, Our Righteousness, which almost by itself informs us that faith in Jesus is necessary for true righteousness. Faith in Jesus is necessary because he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, and he did so perfectly within his earthly life and ministry, and that is something that we cannot do, regardless of the sincerity of our intentions or the zeal of our efforts. Having lived a perfect life that we cannot live, he died as a sacrifice 
putting himself in the place that we deserve, taking the wages of sin upon himself. After three days lying in a grave, he was resurrected and showed himself to his disciples on multiple occasions, leaving many witnesses to prove his resurrection, and he ascended into heaven where he now acts as our high priest, interceding on our behalf to God the Father. Jesus saves us when we put our faith in him and his righteousness. And then he points us to live in righteousness above the standards of the world because through faith in him, we are members and ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. And as such, we are meant to go into the world with the preparation of the gospel of peace, making disciples of Jesus, finding other members of the kingdom of heaven that God has predestined to save. There's no boundary or limitation on who God chooses to save, regardless of how vile they may be or what sin they've committed. And nationality, race, gender, color do not matter. And that is the theme that that follows the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew wrote this way, intentionally following up the teaching of Jesus on the kingdom of heaven with examples of people that he encountered and healing them and, and confirming their faith. Matthew chapter 8 and verses 1 through 17, which, is, uh, which our text is included in, it contains this series of short narratives. In each case, there are rejected types of people involved. There's a leper, there's this Roman centurion, and then there's Peter's mother-in-law, and they're all people in that society that would have had a stigma about them in Jewish society. But Jesus had no reservations about helping them. And in fact, he praises the faith of this centurion as superior to most Jews. Matthew puts these stories together as a fulfillment of Isaiah 53.4, which he quoted in verse, in verse 17 of, of this passage, surely, which says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Jesus went away from the Sermon on the Mount, putting his own teaching into practice, beginning with the leper in verses 1 through 4, who was cleansed from his disease and defilement, and, a, and he was enabled once more to go to the temple and worship. And now in this text, he's approached by a Roman centurion willing to go to his home to heal another unappreciated member of society, a child servant. There's a healing miracle that is part of the overarching theme of this of the message in verses 1 through 17, but Matthew also uses this text in verses 5 through 13 to show the involvement of non-Jewish members of the kingdom of heaven. As this centurion recognizes the power and authority of Jesus, we're given reinforcement to the message of Jesus that entrance into the kingdom of heaven requires faith and not heritage. And we're going to, we're going to explore this passage and this idea in two parts. First, we're going to look at the centurion at Capernaum and then the sons 
that are cast out. So verses 5 through 9 and, and then 10 through 13 is how we'll break it up. So first, the centurion at Capernaum. We read that Jesus entered into Capernaum, a city that sits at the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee where Peter and Andrew lived during the ministry of Jesus. Peter's home became uh, Jesus' sort of unofficial base of operations. And it's possible that even though Matthew wrote his gospel thematically that Jesus was on his way to Peter's house and healed Peter's mother-in-law immediately after the centurion sent for him. And regardless of the logistics, though, Jesus was met by Jewish elders as he entered this coastal city. Luke gives us the, the detail in chapter 7 that, of his gospel that the centurion in our text sent Jewish elders of the city to plead with Jesus on his behalf because he felt unworthy to go to Jesus directly, being a Gentile. And under normal circumstances, no Jew would willingly help a Roman centurion, but according to Luke, these elders begged him earnestly, saying that the one, whom he sh that the one for whom he should do this was deserving for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. So there's already something different about this centurion because the stigma of Roman soldiers is that they're part of the occupying force. He's part of Rome's imposition on Israel. There was a portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that gives illustration to the type of uh, treatment that Roman soldiers could enforce. In Matthew 5.41, Jesus was teaching against retaliation. He says, and whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. And this is referring to a uh, Roman soldier's ability to commandeer a civilian to carry his gear for him 1,000 paces. If you were picked out for tasks like this, Roman occupation could be a huge disruption to your everyday Jewish life. In addition to the fact that Jews already stayed separate from Gentiles and generally felt superior to them, the centurion being liked makes this a surprising circumstance. So obviously there's a difference in this man's attitude that stands out as he seems to have an appreciation for the Jewish faith, having built a synagogue for them. And additionally, revealing of his character is the fact that he cares about his servant. Roman society traditionally saw slaves and servants as no more than inanimate objects or beasts that could talk. John MacArthur, in preaching on this passage, he referenced several sources of writing on, the, on this idea including Aristotle. Aristotle even said that slaves were just property. So again, for this man, to, this man, the centurion, to care about his servant, a young boy, uh, by context of the Greek word used by Luke, he shows that he stands apart from the typical Roman centurion. The boy in the centurion's household, lies paralyzed in pain and suffering, but he is 
blessed in the fact that his master cares about him more than an animal used to pull a plow. He is treated like a human, and he receives sympathy. The centurion pleads with Jesus through his messengers for the health of this boy, and when it when it would have been entirely within his right to let the boy die in his suffering and go buy another slave. So continuing to build the case for this centurion's good character is the fact that he stops Jesus from coming to his home because he says, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. He speaks to Jesus, assigning a respectful title to him, if not even possibly even the title of deity. He recognizes Jesus as someone superior to himself. He knows Jesus' reputation for healing and assigns him the title of Lord based on that. And he also uh, going a step beyond, knowing that Jesus possesses an authority that he has never seen before. And that's saying something, considering that this man is in the Roman army. And that's where the faith of this centurion is seen. He recognizes Jesus' authority, having faith that distance doesn't diminish the authority of Jesus. He makes this comparison of his own military experience. His soldiers and servants take a command and they follow it to accomplish a task at a distance. The centurion only has to delegate the task and know that it will be finished. In fact, he demonstrated this in sending Jewish elders to Jesus. And he applies this idea of accomplishing a task at a distance to the authority that Jesus possesses, knowing that his servant will be healed if Jesus just issues a command. And he's correct. In verse 13, Jesus resolves the pain and the suffering of the young boy with a few words. As I said about it, Jesus, when we talked about the, uh, the leper, Jesus is a purifying force that cleanses and cannot be defiled. He only had to speak a word, and the servant boy was healed. He's a wonderful Savior that cares even for the lowest of society, even when he's approached by someone who's hated by society. There's a marvelous and wonderful healing that takes place. But Jesus also acknowledges the faith of this centurion and turns it into a lesson for those who have started following him. He compares the faith of this Gentile to everyone in Israel, and the crowd would be disappointed to learn that they may even be cast out of heaven. And that's what we want to look at in the second part of this. The sons cast out in verses 10 through 13. Let's, let's read that, uh, that again. Uh, Matthew 8, 10. Oh, sorry. Uh, the sin, no, sorry. Wrong place. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out 
into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. So Matthew writes that Jesus marveled at such great faith. One commentator points out that there are only two times that Jesus marveled. He is astonished by the centurion now, and in Mark 6, 6, Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth and marveled at their unbelief. And this lends itself to the comparison that Jesus makes here in verse 10. I've not found such great faith, not even in Israel. The Sermon on the Mount uh, sort of gives insight as to what the Jews thought the standard of righteousness was from uh, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20 that I quoted in the introduction. The scribes and the Pharisees with their outward appearance of law-keeping and holding strictly to tradition, that was their standard of righteousness. Their faith was in the ritual works of the law of Moses, the sacrifices and the purification practices, but they were lacking in love for God and their neighbor. They were lacking in practical reliance on God. The centurion came along and he provided a contrast by only having practical reliance on the healing ability of Jesus. He threw aside pride and even sent Jews in his place to avoid offending Jesus. This is what members of the kingdom of heaven look like. Their faith is solely in Jesus and his abilities and not in their own hands. The centurion came much like the leper, knowing that he was not accepted in this society, but he found grace and mercy in Jesus. And this description of the kingdom of heaven with Gentiles coming from all directions to take the place of the sons of the patriarchs most certainly made some of those followers walk away that were, that were coming after Jesus and, and listening to him speak at this point. That's not something they would have wanted to hear because the prevailing thought at the time was that no descendant of Abraham could be lost. But Jesus used the terms outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth that are typically applied to the fate of the ungodly, and he applied it to them. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will feast with a gathering of Gentiles that have faith rather than their physical descendants relying on lineage for access to the kingdom of heaven. So it's, it's comforting for us, kind of bringing this passage to a modern thought. It's comforting for us, on the one hand, to see Gentiles included in the kingdom of heaven like this. The centurion seems like a really great guy who had his priorities in life sorted out, but he had his faith in Jesus. And it's a little bit scary, on the other hand, to see 
the group of people following Jesus, knowing that they witnessed his miracles, but many of them still had their faith in their ancestry and their traditions and rituals. And that, I believe, should serve as a warning to us. Our faith must be in the authority and power of Jesus to save us from our sins and not, not being a member of Beverly Manor Baptist Church or a Baptist church or any assembly, but please don't misunderstand me. Church membership is a good thing for an individual that has genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ. Just don't think that going through the motions of becoming a church member and getting your name on the roll or even being a participant in church functions will see you into the kingdom of heaven. Being included in the kingdom of heaven also means being under the the authority of King Jesus and being obedient to him. Yesterday I was in the backyard and I could hear the Morton marching band uh, practicing from a few blocks away. And as their practice went on, the director would stop them once in a while. He would make comments. I could hear everything over the loudspeakers. (laughs) He would make some comments for adjustments and in order for the band to stay together and improve their performance. They had to submit to their director's authority in order to get any better. The kingdom of heaven and our church as the body of Christ will only work well together and improve and grow if we submit to the authority of our king by following his commands outlined in his word. And finally, the centurion also demonstrates for us reliance on Jesus. When we offer prayers, they need to be in sincerity, knowing to whom we are praying. Jesus is the authority above all, and he has the power to, of will to accomplish anything that we can think to ask. And again, these narratives following the Sermon on the Mount show Jesus caring for people considered to be outcasts in society, no matter how insignificant or overlooked you may feel, you can go to him in prayer with confident expectation, knowing that he cares for you.